This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 39 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Yeah, you know, what, what's lovely about what you do, you're a real thinker and a planner, and you really put the extra effort in to actually explore those avenues, even though it might take you 10 or 20 hours. You made me think of one thing um, that I didn't mention, and I don't know if we talked about this before, but I do this practice called thinking time. Did we talk about that? That's the voice this week of Wally Hines. He's the CEO and founder of Basically Today. I first met Wally through one of our networking groups and what really impressed me about him was the way he thinks things through, especially processes. Being an ex-pilot, that's an essential part of the job. Through his company Basically Today, Wally's discovered that during an eight-hour shift, the average employee does two hours and 52 minutes of actual work. His goal for your business is to increase awareness and engagement, which dramatically increases profitability, no added overhead, and happier employees. I first started by asking Wally to give us an overview of his business and who his main clients might be. My journey of being a business owner actually started in 2001. And at the time I was an airline pilot and it looked like the airline that I worked for was probably gonna be going out of business pretty soon. And uh, in fact, it did go out of business about six months later. But at that time, a group of us got together and we had no business experience whatsoever. And the, the business plan was we all had these different areas of expertise. And, and there was no written business plan, but verbally it was like, we're going to go offer these areas of expertise to airlines that couldn't afford to hire full-time positions for all five of us, but they, you know, needed our help. And so we started on September 1st, 2001. So 10 days before 9-11, which oh I used to say was the worst time to start an aviation company. Although I'm pretty sure COVID February of last year is a little bit worse. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. So for about six or seven years, we operated kind of as a consulting, um, you know, firm and uh, learned a lot of things, made an incredible number of mistakes. And then in the, the winter of 2008, I noticed that there were two things that the airlines were fabulously bad at. One of them was managing their own content. I'm talking about like flight manuals, you know, flight attendants, mechanics, ground ops, all that type of stuff. Right. The other was graphics. There, there wasn't, there were some solutions out there for graphics and uh, cockpit graphics, for example, but not very good. So I went to the other four members and I said, Hey, look, I think there's a real need. I think we can really do well. We can turn it into at the time, what I called a real company. And um, to my utter amazement, nobody was interested. Wow. One guy actually said these words to me. He said, hey, look, man, I just like telling people that I own a company and making an extra couple thousand bucks a month. Wow. We are so far out of alignment because I was working, you know, maybe 60 to 80 hours a week on that business. Yeah. And the guy that said that 
was working the second most and he was working about 10 hours a week. So it was clearly, you know, lopsided. And at the time I didn't really matter because to me, because, you know, when I needed their expertise, I would call on it. Right. But I realized that moment we were really out of alignment and I hadn't planned for this, but I found myself saying, well, then I guess I can buy you guys out or you can buy me out. And long story short, I ended up buying them out, which was nothing because the company wasn't really worth anything at that point. And at that time we had 32 clients that we had done work with. It would be unfair to say that we were regularly doing work with them. But at that moment we had done work with 32 different clients over the past seven years. And so that was December 28th of 2008. So fast forward now to November of 2019, when I left the business, we had grown that business to over 650 airlines globally that we worked with on a recurring basis. Wow, that's pretty phenomenal. You know, at one point we had 50 employees and and we had remote people and six continents. I mean, it was it got so much bigger than I ever thought that it would. So that's my start. And it was really trial by fire because I didn't go to school to be a business person. I didn't really wasn't that great with money. You know, it was, we had to learn all of those things. Incredible story. I mean, just the, the timing of it is incredible as well. I and mean, then I'd love to sort of dissect it a little bit, if you don't mind, and go back to that date just before the, you know, the, the 9-11 issue. I mean, what you were 11 or 12 days before that event occurred. Uh, just tell me what you were feeling at that point, because I mean, I, I, I think it's probably the worst event you could ever imagine, apart from COVID, as you mentioned. But how did you kind of regroup? What what were the challenges and how did you get out of the mire, as I call it? You know, it's interesting. I'm going to I'm going to take that question, if you don't mind, and I'm going to move it to 2008. It's the same answer, but the answer for 01 and 08 are the same. But in 08, there was the big crash, right? The, the housing right. and all that stuff, right? And what's really fascinating is we didn't even really know it was happening. You know what I mean? Like we, we kind of knew it was in the news, but we just put our head down and kept going to work, you know, now COVID different because airlines stopped training entirely. So that was different. But at the time, you know, even as people were getting laid off, there were training events that were created. And so same thing with nine 11, I, 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 I don't know how to verbalize it, but it's almost like a little bit of ignorance. Like, we didn't know kind of how bad it was. And so there wasn't a lot of anxiety about it, you know? And at that time, there's also a lot of scrappiness, you know, where, where you're just in there trying to make it work every day. And, and I think when you're in that um, mindset of just trying to make it work, it almost, it almost doesn't really matter what life throws at you because you're already, you already got your fist up, right. And you're going to duke it out. And so for, yeah. So 10 days later when that happened, um, I mean, we didn't even have our first client yet. So we're like, well, we still have to get clients, right? And then, like I said, the airline did go out of business about six months later. So yeah, I think there's a piece of that. And now fast forwarding to today, I, I really look at life a lot differently. So I look at it and I say like, this is where we are. This is where we want to go. This is the path that we think will get us there. But we always kind of have that vision of where we're going. And if a giant hurricane or a terrorist event or a pandemic throws itself in the middle. It's not stubbornness to keep going to the point, but it is a reevaluation and an insistence on that we're continuing to move to that spot. Yeah. And you explained it really well. How important is stubbornness in business? I don't like stubbornness so much for because for me, I know where you're going with it, but for me, stubbornness kind of um, indicates that I'm moving forward without 
well, I would say recklessly. Let's say it that way. That's a great question, by the way. I'd stop and think about that one. So stubbornness to me is more recklessly moving forward, like doggone it. I said I'm doing it and I'm doing it. And I would say I would replace that word maybe with like an insistence or or a passion or something. Or tenacity. Tenacity, tenacity would be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, uh, because there, are, there are times when you say, hey, we are going to X. But then you get halfway to X and you realize that that's a bad plan, right? Or the landscape has changed and now we're going to go to Y. Um, I talked to, when I talked to you last time, I'd mentioned that we started, I'm skipping ahead, but just to answer that question, I started a company kind of by accident earlier this year, the virtual services company, right? And if I would have said, no, this is what I'm doing, that company wouldn't exist today. And that company is, has been wildly successful. It's the best launch we've ever had. So yeah, I think tenacity is the thing. It's like, it's a will, it's a passion, it's a, it's a desire. It is based on clear outcomes. You know, it can't just be based on, I want to go there. I really believe it needs to be based on we're going there. Here's why we're going there. Here's what we'll do when we get there. All those pieces are a part of the, the plan because then it becomes, you know, one, it becomes a lot more real, but two, you're, you're kind of fighting for something. You're going somewhere with a purpose. And if you just say we're going to X, but no purpose is behind it, it's not super compelling for you or for, you know, your staff long term. And I love what you just said there, going somewhere with a purpose. You know, that's the fuel, isn't it, that gets you there sort of thing. But I want to ask you, what makes you passionate, though? What is the thing that ignites the fire in you and the fire in your belly? What is it? I like solving problems. And a coach of mine, a business coach of mine, really turned me on to this. He drilled into that question a couple of years ago. And I said, well, I don't know. I like helping people, which to me always seems like a lame answer. Like everybody wants to help people, I think, on some, some level. But um, when I drilled into it, um, he said, wow. You know, he said, I think if you were, you know, bringing clean water to Africa and people were really lit up about it, and you felt like there was, you know, an exchange of gratitude or, or like you really served somebody. He said, I don't think it matters what you do. And so when the, when the VA company started this year, that really was a little bit of an eye-opening moment for me because one of my friends that I've, I've known for a while, she said, um, she said, what is it with this VA company? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I've watched you start other companies and I've never seen you so passionate about anything. And at that moment, I realized, one, she was right. I couldn't stop talking about it. And two, I really put together that I've kind of been chasing productivity my whole life, right, for myself and inside of processes in the company and things like that. And so bringing my love for being productive and efficient and my love for making an impact on someone's life, regardless of what that is, bringing those two things together has made me just super excited about this new venture. So I think I think that's the those are the two things. Um, I'd like to dissect a little bit about going back to the business in the early days because you know often as not many entrepreneurs find these barriers to their their, their growth of their business. And number one is having enough staff. The big one, having enough cash flow or money, and also you know getting clients. They're the kind of three things that I would say are the big big burning issues. First of all, how did you kind of overcome some of those barriers? And and also were there other things that you have to be aware of when you're starting? a service business such as you were describing? 
Well, at the time, when that company back in 01, when that was a brand new company, when the airline went out of business, um, you know, six months in, and I, I, I'm just going to guess, I want to say we had maybe two or three people we'd worked with at that time. So not very many. There's a couple things that, that resonate for me in that question. One is that at that time, that company was there like so that we could figure out how to pay our mortgages if the airline went out of business. That, that is very, very real, right? So there was never, it wasn't started with like, we're going to take over the world or we're going to be billionaires. It was never that. But the other thing I think that you need to watch out for as a new entrepreneur, especially if it's your first one, I mean, there's a couple of great books, The, the E-Myth um, by, by Michael Gerber. That's a great book. I, I keep six or eight of those in my bookshelf. And if I'm with the Uber driver or something and, and they say, oh, I'm starting a business, I was like, give me your address. I'm mailing you a book. It's a great book for, for new people to look at. But I remember going to visit our first client, our first prospect, really. And when we went there, we had no money, right? Because the only money we had is each of the um, five owners had put in $2,000. So I remember telling my dad, like, oh, we started with $10,000. He's like, well, 50000 I was like, no, no, 10, not 10 a piece, 10, right? And he's like, wow, that's, that's a little thin to start a new company, right? But I remember we went on our first business trip. We went and we pitched and we ended up getting them. And when we came back, one of the guys that went, we never talked about it, but we were all in the airline space, right? So one of the guys that was on that business trip that helped us sell he submitted an invoice or a bill to us for his time while he was gone. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's just not how this is going to work. Like we literally have no money. We have the money we put in. So we got an office and we got some computer equipment and some basics. But I think at the beginning, there is some sweat, you know, that, that goes into it. Now, having said that, part of, part of the kick of the last 12 months for me starting a couple different companies has been that I already have that knowledge, right? So when the new companies start, I'm like, okay, well, we're going to do, 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 do. It's super clean. Nobody's guessing. We've already made all the mistakes before. And I think that's what I would, that's what I would advise. The other thing I would advise is my bookkeeper turned me on to a great book about a year ago. And the book is, is it okay if I pitch or plug them. Absolutely. Go ahead. Because the whole point of the series is that we put the book list at the end and people can follow up on that. So go ahead. So it's Profit First. And the guy's name is Mike. And his last name is is crazy. It has a bunch of C's and K's and Z's and stuff in it. But um, Mike Halowitz, I think is his last name is how you say that. But the book is Profit First. And it is not an understatement to say that that book changed my life. And Essentially, the, the synopsis of that the book is that every business owner, and I've experienced this firsthand, I've experienced it for two decades, he is 100% correct. We look at the formula of income minus expenses equals profit. And his assertion in the book, which now having used this at all of my companies now for about the last eight months, he is right on. The right way to do that formula is income minus profit equals expenses. And read the book. It's amazing. But the gist of it is, is that a lot of us as entrepreneurs, you know, we're not financial wizards. We're not, right? So and a lot of a lot of businesses start because we really enjoy something or really good at something or whatever. And so he makes the argument that a lot of us balance our 
decisions or make our decisions on finances by looking at our bank balances, right? Which is, of course, we all know that's a stupid system because there's stuff that hasn't shown up yet and there's stuff that's going, it's a terrible system, right? So he has a system of accounts that he has you set up. And I have this set up at every company now. So that when you look at your OPEX account, that's the money you have to spend. That's it. There's separate accounts for tax, owner distribution, um, income, and profit. But you've got an OPEX account, and that's where all the money comes out of. And so I've got eight months under my belt now. It's amazing. I have never had so much money in my life. And it's because the business just eats the money if you don't do it that way. You know, you look at the bank balance, and there's 80000 in there. And you only have one checking account for the business or whatever the number is, right? And you think, oh, yeah, it's great. Let's buy a brand new computer system or let's pay $90,000 of Salesforce for the year. But if you look at an OPEX account, and these are all based on percentages. So every time money comes in, a percentage goes to each of these accounts, right? But you look at that OPEX account and it's got $22,400 in it. I'm not buying Salesforce, right? So it's making, it's making decisions like that. And I'm, I will say it was a little bit of a pain to set up the accounts because you, you actually need seven accounts. You need five accounts at one bank and two at another for each company. But following the methodology, I kind of trusted my bookkeeper and I trusted the book and I thought I'll try it with one company. So I did the hard work and, and I started doing it. And it's so easy. It's so easy because you just don't. It almost doesn't make logical sense, but you don't spend the money if you don't have it. But meanwhile, you've got boatloads of money in these other accounts. So when tax time comes due, which for me, it hasn't yet in this new system, but it will next year. So when tax time comes due, there's going to be $100,000 in that tax account that I don't even ever look at. And so it's tax time is almost fun because when the bill comes and it's only for 70, guess what? I just got a $25,000 bonus. So it's, it is an absolute... <laughs> absolute must have. And then um, one one last thing, Dave, because um, this was a pain um, for the bank that you can set these five accounts up. I've done probably 30 or 40 hours of research. I've tried about 25 different banks uh, around the country and Mercury is the clear winner. So Mercury allows you to set up a business account and then it allows you to open additional accounts, like literally with the click of a button right underneath it. So when in the book, when he talks about finding a bank that sets up accounts and they're free, so you can run them down to zero, just like in the great. book. And it's great. So um, that's a lot. That's a very long answer to your question. But if I was, if I was going to give my top, that's what I would give to a new person. Interesting enough the way that you describe that and the book describes it is almost the old fashioned way that we used to do in Glasgow in Scotland is we'd have a jar for the gas money, a jar for a jar for the insurance man, a jar for the kids school, you know, eats or whatever it was. And it was apportioning it accordingly as you were going along. And so you didn't have that nasty surprise at the end of the week when the insurance man was knocking the door and you were hiding under the bed or whatever, you know, I totally relate to what you said there. And I thought that was great practical advice. And thanks for mentioning the bank as well. I mean, Obviously, in other parts of the world, there people are restricted to the number of banks that are in the in the country. But uh, you know, you want to go to one that really works with you. And for my business, it's ATB, Alberta Treasury Branch. They've been great supporters of entrepreneurs and and business here. So I'll give them a little bit of a plug as well there. 
Okay, so so we've got the kind of initial kind of aspects of setting up the business, the worries, the woes and the way fours and how you kind of overcome some of that stuff. I'd love to talk about transitioning because the pivoting thing is really important in business. As you said, you know, the, the horizon never stays the same. And of course, that's a very good analogy when you come to flying. It changes constantly. Um, so that 2008 when, the, you know, you got the crash and you decided there was an area that you could really focus on, which was uh, to do with the image of, uh, of what the airline companies were doing in terms of the visual graphics and also the, to do with the kind of the updating of manuals. So how did you kind of first kind of get focused on that? Was that just by osmosis as you were doing the process with the business or was it something that has already been highlighted throughout the years you'd been with the airlines? So it, I would say it's a combination now I never take any idea as a bad idea. Even if you if you gave me an idea and I think that's the worst idea I've ever had, like or you've ever had, I'm I'm super interested in not saying that because there might be something in there, right? And in my past, we did a lot of that where we said, nope, we're not doing that. And the the funny one is, the funny one is that for cockpit posters and and for the audience, when you go get hired at Delta or American or you know, Sun Country or whoever you get hired with, Air Canada, 99% airlines around the world, one of the things you'll get as a new hire is you'll get a set of cockpit posters and it'll show the forward instrument panel, the center pedestal and overhead so that you can go home and study and learn where all the switches are, et cetera. Well, when we first got into that market, the way that happened was that we had a client that said they wanted a life-size poster. Well, we couldn't print that, right? And so I called at the time Kinko's and I said, hey, I'm, and we had no account with them. They didn't know who we were. We we're a brand new customer, right? I said, hey, we, um, we need to print some life-size cockpit graphics. What's the cost to do that? And he asked me what the size of the poster was. And, and, I, and I told him, and he says, well, it's $7.95 a square foot. And just not bargaining. No negotiation happened here. I just said, wow, that seems really expensive. And he said, well, you know, we could do $3.95 a square foot. And the moment he said that, I was like, what kind of markup do these people have? You know, and come to find out the actual cost to print those things is about a dime a square foot. So that's a small exaggeration, but it is pennies a square foot, right? And so I was like, oh my God, we can kill in this space. But even with that information, we went out and bought a printer. We started doing the life-size graphics. And then a client called and said, hey, we want the smaller posters. And the people we bought the printer from said they had warned us, don't run this printer all the time. It's not supposed to run 24 hours a day. They really struck the fear of God into us, right? And remember, we have no money. So if we break the printer, like we can't get another one and it's a big pain. So this guy comes to me and he says, hey, I want the small posters. And I said, no, we don't do those, to your point, right, about not thinking. And I said, no, we don't do those. We only do the large ones. He's like, but you have the printer. And I explained, well, we're not supposed to run it all the time. I mean, in retrospect, I would never do this. I would run that printer all day long now. But then I was afraid, you know. And so um, so I said, well, how many do you need? And he said, I need 150. And I was like, wow, and we need money. What a coincidence, right? So I said, well, honestly, Gary, I don't even know what to charge you. And he said, well, I'm paying 15 bucks a set now. So I went and verified that that's what he was paying. And ran some quick numbers and realized that 15 bucks a set, we were going to make about $14 on each one of those. And so I said, I'll do the job. But still, that mindset of, of rigidness, I said, but don't tell anybody where you got these posters because I don't want people coming. Right. And I'm so thankful to um, I'm so thankful to Gary 
because he said um, within a week, he had sent eight airlines to us, right? Wow. Then the business just started flowing in. What part does fear have to play in business, do you think? I think it's a big one. And I I think I, I've never been asked that question. Um, but I think it's a very, very big one because I think that there's so many decisions that we made that were based out of fear that you don't realize at the time. You know, you don't actually think, oh, I'm afraid, so I'm making this other decision. But I think of all kinds of opportunities that we missed out on, um, you know, contracts that we should have had, but we didn't want to offend somebody or, you know, that type of thing. Um, Literally hundreds of things like that that have happened. And I would say COVID was amazing for me. This is jumping forward a little, but COVID was really amazing for me because I had left my company that we've been talking about in November of 19. And it really kind of provided a bubble to really reflect on myself and not just start these other companies, but also like a little bit of who am I, what's my purpose, what turns me on, what keeps me awake at night, all that type of stuff. And not just a cursory review of those things. I'm talking a deep, deep dive over 12 months, you know, and and I'm still doing an exercise that I'm now on like day 440 of or something where I'm journaling about those types of questions every single day. And so now when something comes up, I don't tend to shy away or be, be fearful of it. I tend to look at it. And even if it's difficult, I say, well, is, you know, what does the payoff look like? And if the payoff's good and there's a, a pretty good likelihood we can make it work, then let's consider it. Let's do it. You know, I'd be interested to know what other business owners think, because I've always thought that my fear that we're talking about was kind of taught to me by the airline. And what I mean is, as an airline pilot and in all all the training, you are taught to continually look for the anomalies, right? So if everything is going great, but then all of a sudden there's a yellow light or this thing's a little bit off course or the engine's running a little hot, those are the things you look for. Like we're primed to look for the mistakes, right? And I've always kind of credited that with the reason that I was so fearful because someone would come with a great idea and say, hey, we can sell 100,000 posters this month. And I'd be like, well, but, you know, I'm looking for the problems. Right. And so now I don't look for the problems. I look for what's the upside. And if the upside's good enough, then now let's look at the downside. And if those two are far enough apart, then let's go do it. And if we fall on our face, then we fall on our face. But I got to say, I fall on my face a lot less often and, and it feels better. That is hard to quantify, but there's a feeling when you're in that space that um, it's, it's a feeling of like power, not in an egotistical way, but it's a feeling of like, I'm in control of this thing. I know exactly what we're doing. And if a giant wrench falls in, I'm capable to handle it. And that is a completely, I'm getting a little bit of uh, goosebumps just saying that. That's a completely different feeling than, oh, we can't do this or we can't do that. It's terrible for your business. You know, you just got to take some of those those risks. It was interesting your analogy about where you came from, the safety aspects of what you did as a job 
flying an aeroplane. You have to look for the unusual all the time. And it must be difficult. And you often find this with military people or people that have been in the services, converting from being in an environment which is very controlled and very regulated in many ways, and then converting that to an entrepreneurial environment. So what were some of the biggest challenges other than the control aspect and looking for the unusual? What were the other things that you stumbled over when, you, as a pilot, you were going to become an entrepreneur? What did you see as the roadblocks and how did you overcome them? I would say, I wish there was a better answer, but I would say based on my experience, mm -hmm. it was just a lot of mistakes and a lot of getting knocked down and getting back yeah. up again. It was, it was honestly that. Now I'm so much smarter because now if there's a problem I don't understand, like then I'm like more proactive. Oh, yeah. Who do I know that I can talk to? Because you know, everything that you need to do is out there accessible to us in some way it doesn't matter what it is there's a youtube video or there's a person or there's someone who'll do it for you like we have access like we've never had before and in 2001 i mean yes we had the internet but we didn't have ipads for another nine years we didn't have a lot of things that we have today so today it, it's interesting i wonder occasionally like if i took all the technology and access that we have today and i went back to 2001 with my 2001 brain and my mindset would I behave any differently? I, I don't know. But what I do know now is that I've learned to leverage the tools that are available with far greater superiority than I was ever able to do it before. So for me, it was like just making mistakes and then, and then getting back up. But we're launching a giant marketing campaign um, at one of the companies. I've got the high level, how does it work? I don't know anything about that. And so what I did was I went and found someone and I said, look, this is what I want. Am I off base? Is this doable? What does it look like? And then I gave it to them. Right. And now I can monitor the outcomes and this is what's important to me, you know, which I guess that's another thing. Actually, you don't give things initially at the beginning without a verification of whether and how they're getting done. I've gotten burned in that space too, where you kind of, you go through this, you go through the space. I was talking to someone this morning um a new va client and they were just painting this picture of how overwhelmed they are right and and of course i hear that from a lot of people in that space and and you 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 can't just um you can't just like wipe that clean and say oh, i'm going to delegate all this useless stuff right and so if you do and michael gerber talks about this in the book actually that we mentioned before if you just delegate all the stuff and you don't have any systems in place to verify what's really happening, that's also a recipe for disaster. And so that, that happened to me many, many times. And so now what I'll do is if there's something I'm going to delegate, the first thing I do is I sit down, I've got a little process cheat sheet, like what's my outcome? Why do I want this outcome? What are the steps? What do I expect, et cetera. And then when I delegate it, that goes to that person. And then I'll put a system in place, you know, to follow up on it more rigidly at the beginning. And then over time, it might turn into a weekly update or a monthly update. But there's got to be a way that, I mean, you're, you're the pilot of the business, right? So exactly. don't just walk out to the bathroom and, and leave it to some kid that wandered up from first class, right? You've got you've to gotta have systems in place to deal with that. You're halfway through listening to On the Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Wally Hines. Next, I wanted to ask Wally a little bit about where did the family come from and what did his parents do? <laughs> I 
Uh, my dad was, uh, he was an executive, a Caterpillar tractor company. And so I grew up in the Midwest um, in Peoria, Illinois. And uh, growing up, um, class clown is not exactly the right moniker to give to me. But I was always kind of like goofing around, making people laugh, you know, some of that stuff. And getting in, getting in trouble, like as I was younger, but not like getting in trouble, you know, stealing things, more like, you know, pulling pranks and things like that. Um, and then always kind of, I knew from the time I was five years old that I wanted to be an airline pilot. We traveled all over the place. And even as a five-year-old, I was like, this is the best job in the world, which I still kind of think it is, by the way. You know, it's, it's, it's super fun. You've got a lot of responsibility. The reason I don't do it now is because honestly, it just got boring after a while. You know, there's not a purpose. I mean, the purpose is to move people or packages from A to B safely. But, mm -hmm. you know, you go from L.A. to Minneapolis, you know, 3,200 times. And after a while, it's like, why am I doing this anymore? How am I contributing to humanity? That's at least where I was. And it really took um, an injury for me to have that visibility. So I did have an injury in 2018 um, that took me I had a complete quad tear on my right leg. And it took me out of the cockpit for about a year. And by the time 12 months rolled around, I was like, why am I, why am I spending 80 hours a month doing something that doesn't move my life forward? I mean, yes, it's a great paycheck. It's a fun job, but it, it just didn't give me the juice that I, that I wanted. Yeah. And I'd love to go back to the, the passion, you know, when you were five and, and how you converted that to the reality. So let's, let's say somebody is in your position, uh, they're still at school, for instance, they're looking towards university or college. You know, if you want to become a pilot, what, what are the kind of steps that you have to be thinking about? What have you got to be conscious of? Well, initially, I wanted to do that through the military. And so and when I was in high school, I, you know, reached out to the armed services and saw what was available. And at the time, this isn't true now, but at the time, you had to have 2020 vision to be in their flight program. So that that avenue was crossed off to me right away. And so then... You know, I never thought about this till just now, but that kind of tenacity that we talked about earlier, that, that absolutely was in my childhood. I didn't let things go. And so when that happened, then I was like, okay, well, there's got to be another way. How do we do it? And, um, and then I went through a university program. I went to University of North Dakota. Um, they have a great, I think, the best flight training program, at least in the United States, and uh, got a four-year degree as kind of a backup, if something happened to me like medically and I couldn't fly, then I'd have a backup. Um, but that's pretty much it. And then from there, right now there's a giant demand coming. So if you're, if you're an individual, you know, in your early twenties and you've got some flight time, this is a beautiful, beautiful place to be at this moment because they're, everybody's starting to train and hire and all these indicators are that that's just going to grow really quickly. But the normal path is you go and you get your licenses and then you pick up some small flying jobs to build hours. And once you've done that, you just keep going up, up, up until you get to the big guys. Tell me about the industry back then, because it was interesting. I watched a great documentary on Pan Am the other week, and it was a really interesting insight into how the industry originally developed and what, you know, how it was perceived by the public. So were you really on the kind of tail end of that kind of Pan Am image, the one that, you know, the well-to-do flew? It was really you got dressed up to go on a flight somewhere, and it was all about the experience, um, and it wasn't cheap, that's for sure. Is that still part of the DNA that you originally kind of, you know, kind of 
picked up on when you yeah, were? You asked really good, really good questions. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, as a kid, I remember, you know, like 70s, 80s, I remember that flying was more of a to-do. Like we had to dress up and and shoot, you know, even the airlines, when I started working for the airlines, you know, you get to fly for free on most carriers um, as an employee. And, you know, back in the, the mid nineties and two thousands, you could not wear jeans or tennis shoes. You had to wear slacks, you know, or women in a dress and that everywhere that's out the window now. So now, you know, it's, you have to look respectable. You can't wear flip-flops, but you can wear nice tennis shoes, jeans, and a polo shirt that, that never would have been allowed, you know, 30 years ago. So yeah, it has changed. It's also changed in other ways. So I, the airline that I retired from was Sun Country out of Minneapolis. And when I first started working there in the mid nineties, there were all of these guys that were like five or six years from retirement. And it was literally like the romantic age of flying. Like they were a different breed of person and pilot. And today that just doesn't exist anymore. So it's very much, uh, you know, which nostalgically is a bad thing, but safety wise and otherwise, it's probably a good thing. You know, it's almost like there's little pilot factories right now and they come out and this is how we do things. And, you know, but there was more of a, um, of a romantic slash cowboy type mentality, not to say that it wasn't safe, but it was just wildly different. And that has pretty much been eradicated over the last 30 years or so, I would say. If you had your crystal ball, and I know this is very difficult, but with, uh, you know, Richard Branson and Elon Musk going up into the stratosphere and, and beyond into space, you know, if you were looking at that crystal ball and you were looking 20 or 30 years ahead, where, where could it be going? You know, if you had that open mind, what would you think? I mean, one, one place they talk about is, you know, Uber is doing things with pilotless taxis and things like that. Um, they've still been working on that. I, I personally, I've been saying this for years. I personally think we're quite a ways off. I don't know what that means. If it's 15, if it's 20 years, but like there are driverless cabs going around now. Right. But I still haven't been in one. Um, if one pulled up to me, I would get in for the curiosity value, you know, uh, but I would feel safe about that. I would not get on an airplane that didn't have a human being in the front. That's me personally, right? You know, when when everything is going well, the airplane probably is going to do a better job of takeoffs and landings and fuel savings and all that stuff than than a human being. However, you know, it's that 1%. My dad used to say that airline pilots are wildly overpaid 99% of the time, and they're wildly underpaid 1% of the time, right? And so I think this that analogy kind of applies here too. It's like, look, if something really bizarre happens, um, you know, I would much rather have a human being up there. So I don't know that that's coming anytime soon. It's Your question is also interesting because I was just talking to um, friends over the weekend, and I can't remember the name of this book, but there's a great book where the premise of the book is that in 1955, I think it was, there was a first transcontinental flight from LA to New York. And it was on American Airlines. It was in a jet, first transcontinental jet flight, to be more accurate. And um, the cost of that ticket was about $299. And that's still the cost of that ticket today. And so the book posits, how can that possibly be? You know, when we were paying like, 10 cents a gallon for gas in the fifties. And now we're paying $4, right? And everything is like that except aviation travel. 
And he pretty um, convincingly argues that the public at large has demanded or put like a cap on this is what we'll pay, right? And so what that's caused is it's caused the industry as a whole to figure out how to become more efficient, which is why, you know, Boeing is figuring out how do we get 1% lift out of this airplane or how do we do these other things? So it's a great, it's a great book. So, but taking that to your, your question about the future, I don't see federal agencies allowing civilian space for a while. And I certainly don't see pilotless airplanes anytime in the near future. And I think you're probably on the money because if you look at the advanced technology that we created during the kind of 50s, 60s into the 70s with supersonic flight, you know, even Concorde, which was highly successful in terms of what it did for, you know, the people that could afford it, no longer exists as, a, as an airplane that you can travel on, you know? So I think you're probably on the money. I, I'm Listen, I'm done asking you a question, right? And this is just personal, right? So what's your favorite aircraft? So I flew the DC-10 for a lot of years. And I love that airplane. Um, McDonnell Douglas had a different nose shape. So on that airplane, you could be up there at altitude and it was just almost virtually silent. But if you're up in like a Boeing of any kind, um, the, it, the nose shape is a little bit different than the way the windows are. And so it's actually pretty loud in comparison. But, you know, we had 380 passengers in the back. And you also have to temper this was, I was in my late 20s when I flew that airplane. So there was a little bit of, um, you know, like, I can't believe I'm here mentality. Like I've got this big airplane and we're literally flying people all over the world. It's a, it was just an amazing airplane, which got a lot of bad press. But if you look at the, um, if you look at the incidents where that happened, every single one of them was caused by something that somebody did wrong or responded incorrectly. But yeah, it did get a bad press, but what a great, a great airplane. Of course, the 400, the 74-400 falls into that category too. Well, let's circle back around to business a little bit now. So I, I'd love to give the listeners a little bit more of an overview of the kind of range of businesses you're involved with. And, you know, where do you come in that equation as the investor? Because you talked about your VA, which I think is your virtual assistant company. Is that correct? That's correct. I'd love to just know how that kind of developed. But what other companies are you running as well? The reason I left the company that we have been talking about in 2019 was that we, we had an app that pushed manuals and content to the employees at the airline. And in January of 2019, we put in some code that allowed us to see who was actually reading the content. So before you, they'd open their iPad, they'd click accept, they'd sign their name and that counted, right? And so in the early part of 2019, people started asking like, well, how many people are actually reading their manuals? Cause it's a federally required thing. Like you need to read them, right? So anyway, we put this code in, long story short, it turns out that of all the people that signed their names that they'd read the documents, only 18% of airline pilots were actually visiting the pages that had changed. And when I heard that number, I mean, we monitored it for months and it stayed pretty steadily around that space across multiple employee groups, different airlines, things like that. And so it really started to bother me. So by the summer of 19, I was like, how can this possibly be? And I might've mentioned this to you before, but if you think about an airline pilot, the average pilot, well, at a major airline, probably only works five, six, 10, maybe 12 days a month, right? So we're talking about a lot of time off. And we're also talking, you know, if I'm on a four or five or longer hour flight, 
guess what I can do while I'm at cruise? I can read my manuals. I mean, it's perfectly legal. It's encouraged, right? You're in the cockpit. It's a great idea. And so it really bothered me, like high paid profession, a lot of responsibility, lots of free time, you know, why are you not reading your manuals? And so I thought about that over the summer and started to do some research into, is this true everywhere or just pilots lazy? Like what's going on? And so it turns out it is true everywhere that we're in this society where you just, if it's not interesting, you know, we swipe, right. And we, we call it done. And so I decided in November of 19 to leave that company, start a new company that was not just for aviation, but it was for all industries. And it allowed the companies to see how are your staff engaging with this content? Are they engaging with it? And not from a disciplinary place, but from a place of what changes we can, can we make so that they're more enticed to do that. And we've seen read rate percentages jump by as high as 60% in one to two months, just because we are presenting the content to the staff in a way that they enjoy, or they're actually interested, or they don't feel like they're checking a box or, you know, rolling their eyes as, as another meaningless revision comes out to them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you make because trying to do that for human beings is incredibly difficult sometimes. But what what basic things do you go back to to make content, you know, be viewed from a different perspective? And also the more important thing to be retained. So there were two things that were pretty easy right out of the gate when we started. One of them was um, what I would I would call audio revisions, but not like an audible or anything like that. But audio in the, in the sense of giving it to them in a way that's more conversational. So we had played with audio in the early days and we crossed it off the list because we could make it work technologically, but it didn't make sense. So imagine you've got a manual that's you know 400 pages long and there's four changes in it. And this one change is in the middle of a page in the middle of a paragraph. So audio wise, we can't just read the change, which is what we did initially because it's out of context. And if we read the whole thing in context, well, now we're wasting time because you could have gone to the book and read it faster, right? So so finally, one of our people said, hey, why don't we do audio revisions? And I said, "Eh, let's hear what you have to say about it, but we've been down the road, right? And she said, no, let's do it like the boss is out at the bar having beers with their employees and they're talking about, and I was like, that's the best idea I've ever heard. And so you've got changes that happen in a manual that are pretty sterile, right? Like this limitation has changed. And now in the audio version, it says, hey, you guys probably heard about X and here's what happened and blah, blah, blah. And the airplane was down in Houston and, you know, all that stuff. And so we decided to do Y. Well, so that we saw, we saw improvements um, just by presenting the audio because it was more engaging and people wanted to listen. But the real learning that came out of that was that we realized that when an employee gets a revision from their company and they have no explanation about it, it's just like you're that five-year-old kid in the grocery store, right? And, And you say, I want this candy bar. And mom says, no. And you say, why? And mom always says, because I said so, right? So now we're adults and we don't, we don't throw tantrums outwardly, but when the company goes, here's this new policy, they've actually 
they've actually kind of screwed themselves a couple of different ways. One, it's an I told you so all day long because you're not telling me why we changed it. Two, now that we're digital, um, unless you were intimately familiar with the process before, it's lost, right? Because most places do not allow the employees to go back and see the archived versions because the new one replaced it, right? So number one, we've lost the history. Number two, you didn't tell us what was the catalyst that caused this to change. You did tell us what the change was, so bravo. And number four, you also didn't tell us what you hope to achieve by the change, right? So of the four things that are supremely important to retain learning, almost every company on earth is only doing number three. And we've learned too that if you tell them what, what the outcome is, guess what happens? A lot of your staff will come and say, hey, I know you said the outcome is X, but you know I work out here on the line. And if the outcome is X, boy, it would save you 20% if you did this other thing. Well, guess what? Now you've got all the brains from the organization participating. And now the content becomes interesting. So that's just a couple of little sound bites, but it's a, it's a big deal. Thank you for explaining that. And, and I love the, the, the way you position it. You know, you position it from a slightly different perspective, you know, and you're actually thinking about your customer, your employees. What would they think? How would I feel being in that position? So I love that. I really do. So how does your company or is, how is your company able to help people out there in its existing format? How do you go about kind of assisting clients? So with that particular company, it's really looking at how are they distributing content now? and kind of casting a vision for how that could be different. And I will, I will say that, you know, sometimes you, you reach the right person and they go, oh my God, where have you been my whole life? Like, I didn't know this was possible. But unfortunately, a lot of the people in charge of those, they kind of have an attitude of like, look, what we're doing now is working, which frankly, no, it isn't because they're not reading the content, right? Are there other companies within the organization that you can talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've referred to this a couple of times, but the company that I'm really passionate about and I see making really amazing change for individuals, and especially because I think your audience is, um, you know, entrepreneurs or solopreneurs or, you know, people starting businesses is our virtual assistant company. That company really started because I had had a bunch of bad experiences, not bad, that's unfair, just not exciting experiences, right? And um, in December of last year, I got a virtual assistant because I just said, look, I've had not great experiences, but I got to do something, right? And I have too many tasks that I can't do. And she was amazing. And so out of that, <clears throat> out of that, I started telling some of my friends about my experience. And of course they wanted to use her, but no, because I'm using her full time, you know? And so then I started really looking and saying, why was this one different? And, and then once I figured out why there was a difference, then we figured out, okay, how can we write a process around this so it's repeatable so we can give this experience to other people? And so then I went out and, and researched and interviewed over 100 people about their assistance experience. And a couple of things kept coming up. One was this uh, expectations weren't being met. And the way I would um, describe that, I'll tell this here because I think it'll serve your, your, your listeners. Um, but there's a story I tell to each of our new um, clients. And we built part of the company on this, this distinction. And so I have a friend who goes out and he teaches productivity and employee engagement to companies, right? 
So he'll go in he'll spend like a month with them and you get the whole gig. So he goes in this one time and he's telling me the story and the CEO tells him on the first day, he says, Hey, my people lie to me all the time. And so Mark says, well, what do you mean? Give me an example. And he says, well, I'd give you a great example. Last week we had an important job that had to go out. So I went and talked to the production manager and I said, Hey, this needs to go out on Friday. And he said, okay. And then guess what? Friday came and went and the job hadn't gone out. And Mark said, uh, well, that you didn't have an agreement. You had an expectation. And he's like, well, what's the difference? So he gave him some coaching and he said, hey, next time this comes up, let's go back and talk to that guy again. And so to me, this is a key point of the story. No one coached the production manager. Okay. So the next time this comes up, the situation's similar, but a little different. And they go back there together. And the CEO this time says, hey, we got this brand new client. We want to make a really good impression. And we need to ship this thing on Friday. So can we agree, those are the words, can we agree that you'll have it done on Thursday so that shipping can get it out the door on Friday? And without missing a beat, the guy says, there's no way we can have it done on Thursday. He, and then he paused and he said, well, maybe if you gave me two extra people and we could work some overtime, we could get it done on Thursday. And when, when I heard that story, and it was before we started the VA company, it shook me a little because I realized that every day I have expectations of myself that are completely unrealistic, right? And so, so I started applying that to myself. Like, what agreements can I make with myself today? Like, you know, we all hear these tips like, oh, just pick the three things that are the most important. No, like, let's pick those three things and make an agreement with myself that I'm actually going to do them, right? That's different. So when we started the VA company... I said, look, after all the research, we have to have agreements with our clients. So for all recurring tasks, you know, we've got a process for each one of them. And it creates a space where each client is like, okay, I know this is going to be done as spec'd because that's the deal. And so essentially what we've done is we've taken, we've written a process and provided service around virtual assistance so that people can be confident that their stuff's going to get done on time, you know, on budget, all those things. And it's just taking off like you can't believe. I love it. I love it because, you know, that's often is not the last thing you think about. You just want to get the work done. You're not really setting the goalposts up. You're not really setting the expectations, as you said. And so therefore, it's not necessarily their fault a lot of the time. Like you say, it's they don't know the boundaries. They don't know what you, you're going to expect of them. But I love that. And it's funny, actually, it really applies to personal life like you just illustrated there. You know, when you do something in your social life or with your spouse or your partner or your kids, there's expectations are written in there from your perspective, but they don't know. That's the thing. I often feel that in life, our disappointments in life can be really managed really, really well because they could be converted to great experiences just if we if we can write in the expectations and the boundaries. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you do in business that may be not obvious that you want to share with the listeners? So there, there is one thing, um, and I... I would call this the most profound and impactful thing that I do. And it's something that everybody can do. And that is, um, I learned about it from a guy named Keith Cunningham, really smart guy, but he calls it thinking time. And so essentially what you do, there's more to it, but essentially what you do is you come up with a question and you isolate yourself for about 45 minutes. There's no distractions. Um, it's handwritten, I actually write on a tablet, but you, a journal or a tablet is great. And literally for 45 minutes, all you do is focus and think about that question and you don't stop writing. 
So what will happen is um, after about 15 minutes, you'll kind of start to run out of things to write down. And then the next 15 minutes or so, it'll be very similar to the first 15. Like you'll start writing down things that are essentially the same, but a little different. And all the gold is in the last 15 or 30%, right? And so you'll get to a point where your brain says, that's it. Like there's no more. And I've done some of these where my brain doesn't get there for an hour, right? But and I've done some where that gets there in 20 minutes. So it depends on the question. But at that point, stuff, you will realize things from inside of you that you just, you had no visibility to before. I've solved incredible problems using this technique. I've solved issues like in a relationship that get where I got visibility about something about myself that I hadn't seen before. And what I love, like I said, is everybody can do it. All you need is a pad of paper and a, and a pencil, right? And some quiet time. And um, so I had done it for about three years. And in those three years, I did it maybe 10 times. And every time I did it, I got impactful. But I, but I didn't do it regularly because it's a big investment in time. So last July 1st, I committed to do it every day for a year. And so I completed that and I was just checking, today is day 435. So I've done it every day for a year. And about 45 days in, my business coach said, what are you doing differently? And I said, well, I started thinking time a month and a half ago, everything else is the same. I have a pretty solid structure. And he said, well, keep doing it because he said, you're thinking faster, you're smarter, you're, you're making great decisions, you have better visibility. There's literally no downside. And so now, I mean, thinking time can be about anything, personal, business, whatever. But sometimes I'll have a question like today. Um, my question today was about we're, we're kind of doing something new for our clients and I won't get into the nitty gritty of it. But I, the question was literally like, how do we want to roll this out? What does it look like? And so for 45 minutes, I wrote on that topic. And guess what? Some ideas came out at the end that were not in my view before. And they're really good ideas. So I really believe thinking time is the most impactful thing. And, I, and I've done a lot of work in a lot of different areas, but thinking time is, it's really good. There's a, there's one last thing. There's a great quote from Warren Buffett, who I believe made like 80 or 90% of his money after he was 50. Okay. And there's a quote that says, very little time is spent thinking in American business and and I'm missing the middle part, but he says, but I read and I think every day and I do it because I like this kind of life. And to me, that last sentence is where I'm like, oh. and that's been my experience. I feel like I am much better off. I'm much more prepared. I'm much more intentional. I'm much more aware and present because I'm building a practice of thinking every single day. Yeah, and, and that's a great story because the way I relate to that, and I can I can sort of attest to what you're saying, is that you're giving you some sort of scripted thinking time, you know, that time to meditate. Because that's really what it is, is, is getting the brain waves out onto the writing, what's in your mind, you're getting it down on paper, and that actually you're on the money there. Writing it physically is the most important part. It's right? really important. Because it shifts it. It shifts it from one part of the brain to the other. But then you get the meditation time. The, the, the kind of the real juicy bit, you know, that where you can just think. And it, I call it flow as well. A lot of writers do it where you get into the flow and you're writing something and suddenly you just don't stop. And it's a wonderful place to get, but it's really hard to get to. But with practice, and that's what you've been doing for 345 days. I, I'm impressed that you did it. One little hack. 
when your brain runs out of things to say, the trick is every time you finish a paragraph or a sentence or a thought, you put a bullet on the next line. And this sounds so easy, but your brain says, oh, there must be more. So when you get to that point where you're like, I got nothing else, you put that bullet down and more stuff comes out every single time. And I should give credit. I will give credit. So Keith Cunningham is the person that, that I learned this technique from. Later, he wrote a book that came out about two years ago called The Road Less Stupid. And in the first three or four chapters of that book, he does a deeper dive into thinking time, like how to do it and, and whatnot. And I recommend that to people all the time. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, Ollie, in terms of they've got a situation where they could really look at the type of services that you offer, what's the best way of getting a hold of you? So the best way to do that is you can go to the website, yourvirtualgenius.com. And down at the bottom, there's a link that will actually come to me to set up a discovery call. And so when they do that, what we'll do is we'll take a look at like a 40,000 foot view. We've got a really slick way of kind of cutting to the core of where you really need help. And then if that if that's a good fit for us and we're a good fit for you, then we get started. So from a different perspective, and this is something I always ask all of my guests, if you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? Uh, that's a tough one because I used to joke that I would love to take my brain right now and go put it in my 18 year old self. Um, I think there's some problems with that though. I'll give you two examples. One is that I have a friend who's worth about $4 billion and I've known him for about 20 years. So when I started that first company, I reached out to him and I asked him, you know, for some advice, right? Well, he told me some things, but at the time, None of it made sense to me. And the point I want to make there is that he might have been giving me the absolute best solid gold advice in the whole wide world, but because I didn't have the experience to overlay it on top of as a foundation, I couldn't receive it. Another one is the similar is that, um, so I did a whole year with uh, Tony Robbins. So there's a program that you can go to all the events and spend some time with Tony a little bit and, go to private events and things like that. And halfway through that year, I was thinking, why doesn't he just write all this stuff down in a book that's like 50 pages and sell it for like a million dollars, right? And then I would just buy the book and I will do all the things. And it's the same answer, right? It's the same answer. It's because there's not a found the foundation for the next level. It hasn't been built yet. So as much as I don't want this to be true, I'm pretty sure that if I took my brain and put it back in my 18 year old self, um, that I just wouldn't know what to do with the information. I mean, I guess I would say, if I was gonna give myself some advice, I would say, look, don't be fearful. Just go rush into things, fall down, get up and, and do it again. That's what I would do. And then there's one, one more piece. I don't know if I share this with you. Um, when I was in high school, there's the famous Harvard Yale study where they ask all of the um, graduates if they had written down their life goals, right? And what they found, and I think it's been going on for like 30 or 40 years now at this point, what they found was that only 2% of the graduates of those two respected universities actually had written down life goals upon graduation. Fast forward to two decades later, that 2% collectively made more money than the rest of their class combined. So as a high schooler, I was like, well, that's a no-brainer. So I wrote down my goals, right? But here's the thing I would tell, tell your listeners is that I had actually achieved all those goals by the time I was 27 or 28. 
And what I would really do differently is I would write them again because I didn't write goals again until I was like 45. So there's like a 15 to 17 year gap where it's a little bit of drifting, you know, like things were okay. Money was coming in. I was doing this, but I very much look at that time in my life as a, a little bit of a missed opportunity. So that's what I would advise when you do reach the goals, write new ones, go after them. Love it. Love it. That great advice. I mean, I never thought of it on that level, but it's, it's about life is always changing, isn't it? Those boundaries are always changing and the goals will change as well. Well, you know, it's been a, a real pleasure, sincere pleasure uh, talking to you because you're a man of, of great wealth of knowledge and I love your background. I love what you're doing now. And I love the fact that you're reinventing yourself, you know, and that's a wonderful thing to do. And it gives you new passion and new goals. That's the important bit, isn't it? Thank you. My pleasure indeed. And I uh, really enjoyed the, the conversation. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to Another Track with me, David Wilson. Our guest this week was Wally Hines, basically today's founder and CEO, helping you stay abreast of changing processes and responsibilities in real time. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.